So you have undoubtedly at some point in your life wanted to to do something special, to be part of a a special team. Uh, Recently, I watched the, the film of the miracle on ice in the 80s. And you, you see how, how hard. Like there were thousands of hockey players that would have loved to be part of that team. But only a few got that chance. And even fewer actually made the team. Only 20 guys made the team. And in the end, he had to cut one of the guys that had done everything he asked him to do. But he had to get down to 20. Okay? So... It was a great victory for the United States, but think about the guy that was left out, especially the one at the last. Okay? So kind of bittersweet victory. I'm sure he was glad for his teammates. But it's, it's that way, isn't it, in some cases? I remember as a child, being you're, you're playing a game and you're, they're selecting the team and you're just standing back waiting to be selected. And I wasn't one of those that was selected first. So you know, you're just kind of like waiting, will I be chosen? And they eventually had to choose me because... Uh, Everybody played in that in that game, but in the more I guess more significant sense, it it kind of works like that. Sometimes as adults, even you think about some of the elite uh, teams, sports teams, or some of the elite military teams that, that function. You have to earn your spot on the team, and if you don't, if you if you don't have the right physical makeup, it, it, your body stature isn't isn't strong enough or fast enough or your 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 mind isn't quick enough or you're just not willing to work hard enough you're not going to make the team and and even later on after you've made the team if you slack off in some fashion you're off the team so even that happens like in the NFL you just you get old you get slow you get fat and they just cut you you're off you know that's the way it is Sometimes we can kind of import that type of thinking into our lives as Christians. We get to thinking that somehow we've got to make the team. We've got to make the cut. We've got to keep going or or we might get booted off. Certainly, the Lord gives grace. Grace to enter His family and grace to continue in his family. There's no, there's no denying that Jesus called sinners to repentance. So sometimes grace and repentance get pitted against each other. That's not what scripture does and it's not what we're going to do today. There is a perfect blending in the mind of God and in scriptures between the call to repentance and the call to walk in holiness and as well embracing fully the fact that we're called by grace We enter God's family by grace and we're maintained in that family by grace. It's by grace and it's God's grace to you. And the book of, in fact, the book of Ephesians is is really framed by grace. I introduced it last week, but I I want you to see something in in verse two. We're going to we're going to read. Well, let's just read verses one and two to start with, because that's as far as we're going to get this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you notice in verse 2, grace to you. Now, if you would just turn for a minute to chapter 6, go to the end of the chapter. 
And look at verse 24, the end of the letter. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. So it's, it's as, if, as if Paul is, is bookending this whole book. He's framing the book for us to say it's all about grace. And the book is going to get to some specifics. We mentioned that last week about, about how to live as a godly husband, a godly wife, and godly children, and Christ-honoring children. And all, some of those details are going to be fleshed out for us. So there's a, there's a call to walk in this grace. But what Paul wants us to, to be sure of is that we understand that this is all by grace. So even our obedience to grace, to God's calling to grace, is done in the energy and strength of grace. That, that even our obedience is not something we can look back and say, God, I did that, you owe me. It's that, God, by your grace, I am who I am, and I can continue walking in your grace if you'll just continue to give me grace. It's a complete dependence upon him. So what I want us to see today from this, from this introduction, it's a, it's a, it's, this is the first two verses or Paul's introduction to his letter, what some might call throwaway verses, but there's such rich theology in them. We're just going to look at the introduction today. I want you to see how they're really, how, how God prepared both Paul the Apostle and the Ephesian church to be great testimonies of his grace. So we're not going to do a full biography on Paul this morning, but I want you to get a glimpse of who he was. We're not going to do a full study on the city of Ephesus and what that might have been like, but I want you to see enough of, of the Ephesians that you understand that, that they are living illustrations or it, it, scripturally of God's grace. So first, Paul. Paul's encouragement, look at it this way. First point would be Paul's encouragement to draw near to the God of grace. So really that's the main point. As you you read this, look at your invitation to come to the God of grace. He's calling his people. He's calling those who are even not his people. Currently, he's calling them to himself. And this is, this is, just want to see Paul's encouragement by through his life, Paul's encouragement to draw near to the throne of grace. So this epistle begins with an uh, announcement really of, of who wrote the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So I want you to see who Paul was when he wrote this letter. He was an apostle. Now the dictionary definition of the term apostle means one sent with authorization to communicate a special message. So the emphasis was on the authorization of that message. Right? He was carrying an authoritative message from the messenger. Right? So that, that is, a say, a dictionary de- definition, a New Testament definition of uh, an apostle. The, the, the New Testament uses the term apostle in at least three specific ways I'm going to highlight. Three specific ways. The, the first uh, way is it speaks of an apostle as the as in reference to the twelve apostles. These would be uh, like a specific sense of the word apostle. So generically, apostle just means like the one who's sent with an authoritative message. But there are the twelve apostles. That's a specific use of the word apostle. Uh, we know of the 12 apostles that Jesus called to himself in passages like Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and even Acts chapter 1, verse 13. The 12 apostles are, are listed there. 
Now, this refers to the office of an apostle. The requirements for the, for an off, for someone who holds that office are listed for us in Acts chapter one as the, as the apostles themselves were determining on who to replace uh, Judas with. Judas, um, who betrayed our Lord and who later ended up committing suicide. The apostles thought it wise to replace him with another man. And, and those requirements are listed in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. So first of all, the man had to witness the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. That was a requirement. That's what they said. Whoever it was going to replace Judas had to, had to be with him from the beginning. From the beginning of Jesus' calling those, those first disciples to himself. Secondly, it had to be someone who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those two requirements um, were necessary in order for them to find a replacement. And, and they did in Matthias, as, we, as uh, the book of, of Acts tells us. So there's the, those apostles, those that have the official office that were chosen by the Lord and, and the one that was re- replaced. Um, and took Judas's place. Then there's the use of the apostle in, a, say, a more generic sense. So you have the specific sense, then you have a more generic sense. The the word essentially means a messenger carrying an authoritative message, um, and and these messengers are sent out and authorized by the apostles, but they're not the apostles themselves. For example, in Galatians chapter one verse nineteen, James, the Lord's brother, is called an apostle. He's not among the 12, but he's called an apostle. So it implies the different use of the word. Let me just read that for you. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, another another name for Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days, but I did, did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So this isn't James the apostle, this is James the Lord's brother, very specific, but nonetheless the scriptures call him an apostle. Then there's Apollos in 1 Corinthians 4, um, when Paul is, is speaking about his ministry and Apollos' ministry, he says this, 1 Corinthians 4, he says, For I think that God has exhibited, has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. And when he says us apostles, he's actually, if you look at the context, he's actually talking about himself and Apollos. So he counts Apollos as among the apostles. Then there's Titus. In Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, Paul says, As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, a glory to Christ. The word messenger, that translation is the same word, apostle, same Greek word. So there, Titus and some brothers are called apostles. Epaphroditus is called an apostle, but I regarded it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. The word messenger, again, is a translation of the word apostle. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul kind of says there's a, there's a bigger group even that, that are called apostles. We don't even know them, but just listen as Paul recounts the importance of the resurrection and the appearances of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 5, he says, and, and then Jesus appeared to Cephas, again, that's Peter, then to the twelve. The twelve is that specific use referring to the, the apostles. The twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom remain until now, that is, they're living, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he, that is Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So you've got the twelve. In this text, you've got the twelve, you've got all the apostles, and then you've got Paul. So notice he doesn't include himself amongst the twelve. But nonetheless, he calls himself apostle. Now think about the requirements to be an apostle. Did Paul witness the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? He, he did not. Did he witness the, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, not really. Now he did meet the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But Paul is like a special case. So, um, a, a, a special sense. He, he's an apostle in a special sense. And that's why he refers to himself as to one untimely born. One untimely born. And, and he may have even implied not just his physical birth, but his spiritual birth. That, that he was not converted at a time to even pay attention to who Jesus Christ is. Um, didn't know much about him probably until the church began to grow and began causing a, a massive problem for the, the Jews in Jerusalem. But Paul clearly was an apostle. There's no doubt about it. He claimed that in many of his letters, as in this one, he exercised the authority of apostle. Just read his letters, how he authoritatively he speaks, and the church received this as authoritative as coming from, from the Lord. So he exercised the authority of an apostle. He performed miracles. We read about this in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13 and, and 14, where, where Paul at one point prayed for a musician um, to be blind for a time, and he was blind for a time. There were such miracles being done that, that people would, were bringing um, things to Paul. He was just, he was healing so many people. All, these are the things that the apostles did. They had, they worked signs and wonders in the days of their lives in order to authenticate that they were God's official messengers. And as they preached the word to authenticate that the word they were preaching was actually God's word. So um, we also know Paul's an apostle. He, he laid his hands. Um, on for on the uh, some disciples that he found in Ephesus, um, that and when he did that, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So again, mimicking what happened through Peter as well. So we know that Paul is an um, an apostle, but again, he didn't witness the Lord's earthly ministry. He didn't directly see the Lord's. Resurrection, although, again, he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But, but again, all this points to the reason why Paul considers himself the least of all the apostles. He considers himself to, to be an apostle one, as one untimely born. So it's really a special, a special case. Paul is the exception to the apostles' rule. The rule of being an apostle, of the requirements of being an apostle. There are no other apostles. The office of apostle did not continue. So there are people today who claim to be apostles and are not. They are imposters. If they are mean by that they're claiming the office of apostle. So could they be using the generic sense of the apostle, saying I'm sent with an official message from a church or something like that? Sure. In a sense, missionaries are sent out like that. They're sent out with a, to, to do a task, to carry on a task, and to preach the gospel. 
but they're not apostles in the sense of the official office sense, or even in the sense of Paul, where they were giving direct revelation, they were writing revelation uh, to the church. You know, the, the apostolic age has ended. They are the, as we'll see it from Ephesians, they are the foundation. Right? Christ, the cornerstone of the church, the, the apostles and the prophets are the, are the foundation. And now the church is being built. So don't, don't fall for um, those who would claim to be apostles and are not. Even in Paul's day, there were plenty of people who claimed to be apostles and are not. So you must exercise discernment in these things. So even in the days of the apostles, there were false apostles. Now, it's kind of a good segue a minute to talk about who Paul was before he was the apostle. Paul was born and probably raised in Tarsus. Tarsus is a, a, was a Greek city on the Mediterranean. Um, Tarsus is now in Turkey, a Turkish city. So you can actually visit, go visit um, Tarsus today if you should want to do that. And there are ruins there that probably um, that extend to the time when Paul lived there. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. We have no idea how he gained his citizenship. That was actually something that you could buy if you had enough money and there was uh, a Roman consul who was unscrupulous enough to sell it. Uh, so somehow Paul obtained citizenship in Rome. That was a big deal. And we know that later in his, in his ministry and life, he relied upon that actually to get him to Rome uh, to, to have a trial before Caesar. Paul is the Greek version of his name. The, the Hebrew or Jewish version of his name is Saul. And he went by Saul until his conversion. Since Paul was a Roman citizen, he probably also had a Roman name. Perhaps Paulus has been um, suggested of that. So, but his, his Hebrew or Jewish name was Saul. And that's how, that's what he's named when we first meet him in scripture. And that's really appropriate because he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Who's the most famous Benjamite in the tribe of Benjamin? But King Saul. So undoubtedly his parents named him after King Saul. He was a tent maker by trade but also a careful student of the law and zealous towards Judaism. Now, it's, it wasn't uncommon for someone who was a scholar to also have some kind of a trade. I think that was uh, done intentionally. Um, so we know that Paul was a tent maker, and there's a lot of debate about, well, what normally the tents then were made of skins of animals and often pig skins, and what did you actually touch pig skins in order to make the tents. We just don't have all those details. We know that, that Paul was very zealous towards Judaism and he was a tent maker. There were other types of materials available to make tents. So we don't have the details that we need to answer all of our questions, but both things are true. There's no indication that, that Saul ever met Jesus. At some time in his life, Paul, Saul moved from Tarsus down to Jerusalem. We are told that he was schooled in the, in the school of Gamaliel, which uh, creates some, some chronological problems for those who are looking at genealogies, but it, it, it may have been that Paul was taught by someone rather than Gamaliel himself, rather one of Gamaliel's disciples. So, um, but we know that that was an elite school. Paul was trained in that school. So again, it just shows how fastidious he was towards Judaism. He was progressing in Judaism. We know that. But we first encounter Saul at Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. So I'm going to ask you to, 
Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is about uh, Stephen really just giving a defense for his faith and, and proclaiming Christ and then Stephen being martyred. We're not going to walk through all that, but that's the context that we find ourselves in. And that's the context in which we first encounter Saul, who would later become Paul. It, it, let's pick up the, the account in verse 54, chapter 7, verse 54. So Stephen is giving his defense to people, and, and they were convicted. That's where we pick up. Now, when they heard this, they became furious in their hearts, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So the Jews would have understood that was a reference to Jesus, clearly. But crying out with a loud voice, they covered their ears and rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen. And as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So that's the context in which we first encounter Saul. He was at the, the, the stoning of Stephen. And in fact, was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. That's who Paul was. He was a persecutor of the church. But then turn to Acts chapter 9. So after, after this, the church undergoes persecution. There's, there's growth that's happening in, in the church, even during this time of persecution. Pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And asked him for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now the term the way is, is what Christianity was called before it was called Christianity. It was the way. Really just, I think it was called that because Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. So they were followers of Christ, Jesus. And they were, it was called the way. So Saul was looking for followers of Christ, those who were in the way. Now Saul probably wasn't acting in any official capacity in that he was paid or hired uh, by the chief, by the, those in, the, like the chief priests in Jerusalem. But they were more than happy to supply him with authorization to go arrest all those that he could find. Now, isn't it interesting that again, think about the word apostle. Paul is coming with an official word that he can arrest whomever he finds that, that belongs to the way and bring them back to Jerusalem. But instead, God does something to, to change him totally from a messenger of, of the Jews in Jerusalem to a messenger of Christ 
whom he actually, whose followers he's currently seeking. Look at verse 3. As he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me, that is Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he rose up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So notice there's a special call upon his life where Jesus meets him, confronts him, and calls him to himself, not just as a believer, but as an apostle. He is he is already determined. God has already determined that Paul is going to be an apostle. He is going to bear witness uh, of Christ before kings, before the the Jews in Jerusalem, but also in front of Gentiles. So God has a special calling on Paul's life as an as an apostle. Notice also how how quickly Paul begins to carry out that role. Look at verse 19, the end of verse 19. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And he immediately and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues and saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded and were saying, Is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those that called on his name and who, who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall, lowering him in a large basket. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the the apostles and recounted to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. 
and he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it continued to multiply. I mean, just think about the miracle that, that God worked through the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Saul to Paul. I mean, before the church was being persecuted. And, and the stunning transformation of Saul so confounded Jerusalem that it stopped persecuting the church. And there was a time of peace. They, they just didn't know what to do. And the disciples sent Paul back to Tarsus. That was his, his hometown. Now, just think about Paul's life for a minute. Why was he selected as an apostle? Why was he selected as an apostle? Well, he, he tells us. If you go back to Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, Ephesians 1.1 1, 1 tells us, by the will of God. By the will of God. It's not as if Paul had done anything to earn this, earn this at all. In fact, the things that he had done were against the way, against Christ and against Christ's people. So Paul didn't deserve God's grace. He didn't deserve to be called as an apostle. We're told just how fastidious, how zealous Paul was for Judaism in in Philippians 3, where, where he talks about his life before Christ. He says, finally, my brothers, I rejoice Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is of no trouble to me and is a safeguard to you. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Otherwise, I myself might have confidence even of the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So Paul's just, he's making a case from, from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, look, I could have every reason to boast. Look at him, he's going to list it. Um, He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee. And we look at the Pharisee and we say, oh yeah, just say they were fake. But you got to understand, the Pharisees, though they they, uh, emptied the the core elements, the the heart of the law, they were still fastidious with, with every little detail of the law, at least in an external sense. Um, so uh, uh, he says as to zeal a persecutor of the church as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless so if anybody could take credit for like what he was doing or what what he would do for God it would be the apostle Paul but he doesn't he says whatever things were gained to me those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ more than that I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. You see it? You can't hold on to all your achievements and gain Christ. You have to let go of everything. Your curriculum vitae, everything that you've done in your life, it's garbage. Spiritually, you have to just trust Christ. It's all by grace. Paul is the perfect example of this. He was the elite of the elites. And he's saying you can't get on God's team. You can't enter his family with that curriculum, with that, with showing all that you've done. You have to abandon that, consider it rubbish, 
and cling to Christ. So hence, Paul is the perfect example of one who clings to the God of grace. He's an example. He not only preaches and teaches us about grace, he's lived it. So not only does he have direct revelation from God that he gives us, so he speaks with that authority, but he also speaks to the authority of having lived it. He's saying, you can look at my life. I should have been able to earn a spot within God's family, but I realized that I couldn't. I have to depend upon grace. It's, it's God's grace and grace alone. And, and just to try to help us think through carefully, it's not as if God looked through the eons of time and said, you know, Paul, as zealous as you are, if you would just be a witness for me, then, then you, could, you could do a lot. You have a lot of potential. I think I'll select you. That, that's utter nonsense. If you know how the ways of God. God uses the destitute. God uses the weak. God uses those who are nothings of this world to accomplish his purposes. Because if he uses the elites in their eliteness before they're emptied of that, if he uses them, who's going to get the credit? You know what's going to happen. You know, they might give you some verbal acknowledgement that they're humble, but but in reality what they may be doing is like, yeah, me and Jesus, we did that. We did it. Yeah, look what we did. They're going to take credit for it. And as much as God would use Paul to do, he couldn't have a servant who thought that he earned a spot or did something to get there. And Paul wrote 13 letters. There's no other apostle that has so influenced Christianity as, as Paul has done, both then and now. You could get a big head from that. Paul had to know that it was completely by grace, or else his letters that he wrote are kind of vacuumed out. There's nothing to them. So there's the witness of Paul. Uh, just realize that as Paul writes, he writes with the authority of the apostle. He writes with the authority of experience. So listen to him as he as he talks about and he teaches us about grace. Let's look at the Ephesians here in the time we have left. Who are the Ephesians? Right, so go back to Ephesians if you're elsewhere. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's two descriptions given of the Ephesians there. To the saints who are at Ephesus. So who are the saints? To the saints. Paul uses this phrase as his introduction uh, both in this letter, in this letter, in Philippians and Colossians. When he's writing to a church, he describes them as saints in these letters. In other letters that he writes to churches, he just uses the word church, to the churches. In Corinthians, the first and second letter of the Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, not Ephesians, Th uh, Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, and even a sense to his letter of Philemon, which is written to an individual, but he mentions that the letter is also to the church that meets in your home. Uh, it helps, seeing these, the, the parallels helps us to understand that the term saints here is, means the same thing as churches. It's Paul's way of referring to the church when he uses the word saints. Now, what about this word saints? I mentioned to you last week, it's, it's saints by calling, not by practice. Um, we who are followers of Christ cannot refer to ourselves as saints in a practical sense 
is we haven't arrived yet. We're all in process. We struggle with sin. Um, you know that experientially, but we also know that from, from the Bible. So when Paul uses the word saint, he is using it in a sense of, of calling. Uh, it is used there to speak of being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. Now, now the word saint there is actually the same word that could be translated holy and is used of God himself. And when it's used of God himself, it's not just the, the calling. It is actually speaking about God's otherness, God's moral superiority, that he possesses certain divine qualities. But it is that same term. And that is the calling. So understand when Paul talks about, you know, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The calling is that of being a saint, of being holy. And we're to then try to live that out. Now, what what Paul uh, says next, he says to the saints who are at Ephesus. And if you have a Bible with uh, either a study Bible or a Bible with references or something like that, you're going to it's important to pay attention to those little numbers or letters that are put there. That the phrase at Ephesus has a note in it in your Bible that it says that some early manuscripts, in fact, three early manuscripts do not have the word that phrase at Ephesus. So there's a lot of debate about this letter. Is it really to Ephesus or is it not? And these three early manuscripts are known to be fairly reliable. Okay? But there's a big debate. Is this to Ephesus or is it more of a generic letter? Or like a uh, letter like Galatians. The Galatia is not a city, it's a region. So we know that there, Paul wrote that as a circular letter that went to multiple churches. So is Ephesians kind of like that? Well, it doesn't seem that it is. First of all, there are many early manuscripts that have the phrase in Ephesus, at Ephesus in it. So we don't really know what to make of that. As well as even the, the manuscripts that have, that are missing the term in Ephesus or at Ephesus, even those, the title of, of the section where the letter of Ephesians at it says of Ephesians. So now the title of the letter isn't inspired at all. So I'm not trying to make too much of a case, but it was recognized that this letter was the letter at Ephesus. So I tell you all this to say, if you read the little note in your Bible, that's what's going on. There's a little bit of debate, but I think in the end, most scholars say there's good reason to confidently believe this letter was written to the saints at Ephesus. Ephesus was a center. It was a hub. In Paul's day, it was the city. It was the most prominent city in, in Asia, the most prominent Roman city in Asia. Uh, it had in the past it had been a hub of, of transport. It was a city rut on the Aegean Sea, and due to a number of factors, they had a lot of problems with silting. So over hundreds of years, Ephesus, the river that fed that came through to Ephesus, silted in such that by the time of Paul, Ephesus is about three miles from the coast. That's how much silting is going on. And we're talking about hundreds of years going on. So in Paul's day, only the smaller ships could come into the port of Ephesus. The larger ones had to bypass it or to offload their, their loads to smaller ships that could navigate uh, up the little river uh, in the canal and then up into the port of Ephesus. So Ephesus was kind of a dying city at the time. Nonetheless, in Paul's day, there were about 250,000 people that lived in and around Ephesus. A lot of people. And it became a hub for ministry for Paul. It, later on in um, 
when the Apostle John is ministering around, he actually chooses, according to church history, he chooses Ephesus to be his basis of ministry later. So as he's writing to the churches, as the Holy Spirit moves upon him to write to these churches that we now know are in Asia Minor, John would have known those churches that he, that he wrote to because he lived in those areas. So what about this? What about Ephesus? What, what's so important about Ephesus? Well, it's important for us to, to recognize who they were before Christ. So they experienced a similar transformation to Paul. And I'm going to ask you to go back again to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. Now, we first encounter Ephesus during Paul's second missionary journey. Paul's missionary journey is going to be broken up into three. Um, and we, don't, we won't take time to, to relay all the details with all three of them. But during Paul's second missionary journey, he travels to Ephesus for a very short time. And we see this in Acts chapter 18, um, and really beginning at verse 18. Um, Sorry, I'm in the wrong place. Chapter 18, verse 18. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brothers and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Shansria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they arrived at Ephesus, and he left them there. That is, he left Priscilla and Aquila there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And, and, he, and he went on. So Paul's first encounter with Ephesus was rather brief. He went to the synagogue. He taught the Jews. He reasoned with the Jews. Uh, obviously, reasoned with the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That was Paul's emphasis, was to really focus in on, on the gospel. But he leaves, importantly, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to continue ministering there. Now I pick up in verse 24. Notice what else? So, so Apollos shows up in Ephesus. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, arrived at Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, and he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So Apollos ministers for a time in Ephesus and leaves to go over to the area like around uh, where Corinth was at. So the church at Ephesus was started by a brief time of Paul's preaching. We don't know who believed during that time. We don't have any details. But there were disciples who were left, Priscilla and Aquila who were left. So they really helped build the church along with Apollos' preaching. They were the start of that church there. Now. Paul returns during his, to Ephesus in his third missionary journey. Look at, let's turn to Acts 19 where we see that third missionary journey. 
And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. And and he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is Jesus. And when they had heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now there were all in about twelve men. And after he entered the synagogue, he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil of the way before the multitude, he left them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Asia, Asia Minor. All heard the word of the Lord. Why? Because Ephesus was such a center. It's a place, still a place of commerce. People were coming and going in and out of the cities. So these people heard the gospel, were saved, went back to their home cities, and actually started churches where they were at. Epaphroditus uh, did that. And, and look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that cloths or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to invoke over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, seven sons of one named Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, whom, in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, subdued all of them, and utterly prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house, both out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And also, also many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices, and many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing and mightily, was growing mightily and prevailing. Now just pause a minute. Think about this. This, the, the encounter with the Jewish exorcist. The fact that there were so much, there were so many magicians, so many who practiced magic in the city that when God saved them and they knew they they had to do something about their their books of magic, they didn't want to sell them because that would encourage someone else to practice that, so they ended up burning them. But look at the value of them, 50,000 pieces of silver. Would you like to have 50,000 pieces of silver today? I, sh- I would, I'm sure you would too. That, that's 50,000s of day wages. Like a piece of silver was a day wage, so that's, 50,000 days wage. That's how much that that was worth. That tells you something about the city. That's why I'm emphasizing that. Not the value, but but to see that's how much this city of Ephesus was involved in the occult. They were involved in demonic and demonism. All this was going on within the city. And and also, Ephesus was known that time as one of the one of the they had one of the seven wonders of the world at that time was a temple to Artemis. And and we read about that later. It causes a a riot. So this was a city of idol worship. 
They profited off of idol worship. They were magicians. And, and we know that there are no such thing as like, um, like false gods, but there are demons who masquerade as false gods and they were at work in this city. Now just, just pause. This is who the Ephesians were before they came to know Christ. Did they earn God's grace? Could they earn a spot on the A-team with, with Jesus? Absolutely not. They were, they were broken and destitute and did not desire, did not deserve God's grace. They, des- they deserved God's wrath. But, but God worked wonderful things in their midst. So much so that the silversmiths had a problem with this. Because the silversmiths are the one who built idols that were then worshipped in this massive big temple that was in, that was in uh, Ephesus. That temple's been destroyed. So you, you can visit the, the ruins of it, but it no longer uh, remains. But there's this massive riot. Don't take time to read it in Acts 19, where they're they're like they're just chanting. They're, the silversmiths are, are basically wanting a, a massive revolt. They're wanting revenge on Paul because they're going to ruin uh, their trade, but they're also concerned about their their false god uh, Artemis the Great, whose image has fallen down from heaven. So the uh, temple that they had had some kind of image in it that supposedly fell down from heaven, and that's what they worshipped, and that's what they're trying to defend. That that. When they, um, the way that Ephesus is organized, and we know this because you can go there today. The ruins are there. The city is not, but the ruins are there. You can see where the port used to be, and there was this there was this massive uh, street on either side of the street. There were buildings, so the marketplaces connected where the uh, ships would come into harbor to a massive stadium. And so the silversmiths would have been selling their wares to people who were, had arrived at the harbor, coming into the city. And from, from the, from the city, then they could go on to this temple. But there's also this massive amphitheater. And you can visit the amphitheater today. It exists. You can see very nice pictures of it. That's the very amphitheater where this riot took place, where they wanted to drag Paul. And Paul wanted to go in there and say, I'll defend the gospel. I don't care about my life. And the disciples wouldn't let him, wouldn't let him do that. All that is going on at Ephesus. All that to say is, Ephesus didn't deserve God's grace. But they received it. In in the midst of a city full of pagan idol worship, the practice of magic, it is significant that that Paul describes these believers not just as saints, but as what? Faithful. Faithful in Christ Jesus. You know, if the Ephesians can figure out how to be faithful in Christ Jesus in such a pagan environment, with so much sin going on, with riots, people wanting to like, basically wanting to kill some Christians that day. Didn't happen by God's grace, but they wanted to. If, if they can figure out how to be faithful in Christ Jesus, okay, we can too. By God's grace, be faithful in Christ Jesus in our culture. But again, by His grace, both both the witness of Paul's life, the witness of the Ephesians, is to trust this God of grace. They're both object lessons, if you will, of one church or people lived in a city, another an individual, but none of them earned their place in God's family. None of them deserve that. In fact, they deserve the wrath of God. So there are two witnesses I want you to hear, but there, and that's Paul and the Ephesian church. There's one more that I want us to look at. 
Go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verse 2. It's one more witness. And I'm using the, the term witness in a, in a sense of trusting the scriptures. The scriptures are a witness to us. And the witness in verse 2 that I want you to hear is actually God's witness. So you have Paul pleading with you to, to trust in the God of grace. You have the Ephesian saints trusting with you and pleading with you to, to, to trust in the God of grace. But, but now hear from the Holy Spirit. Right? So this scripture was written by Paul, but it ultimately flows from the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit says to us. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, it's a traditional uh, spot for a greeting of a letter, but, but it's not just a greeting of a letter. This represents Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and, and ultimately it reflects the, the will of God and how Paul would pray. So this is, it's God's will that he extend his grace and peace to them. And he, God extends his grace and peace today to all who will call upon his name, who all will who trust him. This is God's call. He says, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies two sources, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord being the word for master, kurios, right? our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace flows through Jesus Christ. So ultimately, it comes from God, our Father. Notice he says not God, the Father, but God, our Father. It's that personal relationship. But what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. You didn't do anything. As soon as you do, as soon as you earn just a, a do a little part, then it's no longer grace. Grace is a gift, a gift you don't deserve. Um, David Hebert explains that grace is the, is the divine love of God manifesting itself toward guilty sinners in free forgiveness and unmerited blessing. It's nothing you can do. And peace. What about peace? So often we think about peace as just a lack of a lack of war. And and obviously it does mean that, but it's there's the, the biblical understanding of this term peace is so much richer than than just lack of war. Uh, Peace refers to the, the state of, of being at rest, of having everything you need supplied. Um, one, one Old Testament explains that peace, particularly in the Old Testament, came to stand for the total well-being which comes from God and which is then in the New Testament identified with Christian salvation. So it's it's not just lack of war, but it's it's a a total well-being. And as God's grace is applied to unworthy sinners as they exercise faith in Jesus Christ, then peace with God is given as a resultant experience. So without grace, you don't get peace, and it's but it's only through depending on the grace of God that you get peace. That God supplies that. These things go together. Uh, listen, listen to to Kent Hughes and and Brian Chappell uh, explain the important relationship between grace and a, and a sense of peace. And I'll just quote them here: When when persons become absolutely convinced that their standing before God is based entirely on His grace and not in on any goodness in themselves, peace comes. 
This peace that Christ's reconciliation provides is not only the end of antipathy between a rebellious heart and its creator, full understanding of grace also provides relief from the constant striving for status and affection that characterizes the natural human state. Assessments of who is more deserving of God's affection or a claim go away in the recognition that all fall short to the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Competition for recognition and regard fades in the realization that all the rewards of grace are unearned and we become equal members of the fellowship of those whose condition is desperate apart from Christ. And this humbling realization is the foundation of Christian harmony. So God's grace leads us to peace, realizing that we don't have, and indeed can't, earn our place in God's family and can't maintain it. God has to, through Christ Jesus. It's through His grace. So this is Paul's prayer, and ultimately God's prayer for us, that that we would have his grace. And remember that Paul is writing to saints, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this this grace and this peace that he's referring to is ongoing grace and peace. It's not just the initial, hey, I'm saved type of grace and peace. This is the ongoing grace and peace that we need in order to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. It's his sustaining grace. And God is the source of this, flowing through Jesus Christ in faith. So, reflect. You have, you have Paul's life as a witness to God's grace. You have the Ephesians church, the believers there as witnesses of God's grace, how he completely saved them out of, out of paganism. And then you really have, really have the call of, of verse 2 of God himself. Say, my grace, my grace and the resulting peace are there for you. And if you, you don't know the initial saving grace and peace of God in, in a saving way, That can be yours if you will simply trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And and today can be the day of your salvation if you you will just call upon Him. And think about that. If you don't do that, and you meet God on the day of judgment, and you will meet God on the day of your death or the day when He returns in judgment, one of the two, how are you going to respond what answer will you have when he asks you, why didn't you respond to my offer of grace? That's going to be a very embarrassing and humiliating time for you. And you will face an eternity of judgment because of that. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because God, the God who we're going to talk about calls people for, from salvation before the foundation of the earth, that call extends grace. And sometimes we we want to like reconcile in the human mind. Well, well, how does God's sovereignty and salvation work with man's responsibility? And somehow we, we allow God's, we just default to God, and, and which is a good thing, and just say, well, well, well God's, God's sovereign. I, I, I don't know what's going on, so I guess it's not really important whether man believes or not. And other people will say, no, it's important that men believe, so they just they discount God's sovereignty and salvation over here. So, then they say that man, human beings, are the ultimate determiner of whether someone is saved or not. Right? Both of those are wrong. There is a way to bring together the sovereignty of God and salvation, man, man's responsibility, human be, people, human responsibility to believe together 
And that's in the scriptures. Does the, do the scriptures explain how those two things are, are congruent, how they work together? No, the scriptures don't. It's beyond our understanding. You're not going to understand it. I don't understand it. The brightest minds among us won't understand it. It's in the mind of God. They are not in opposition to one another. So we preach Christ and call people to salvation. And you can count on the fact that if you genuinely follow, believe in Christ and you trust in him, he will grant you eternal life. So as we talk about predestination in the days ahead, you just need to keep that in mind. That, that, that figure, it's not your job to figure out whether you're predestined or not. It's not your job to figure out whether you're called or not. It is your job to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust him by faith. And if you will do that, God's grace and his peace will be extended to you. And as we talk about grace, allow that to encourage you if you are a believer in Christ. That you're, you're in his family by his grace. By his forgiveness. There's nothing you can do to remove yourself from that. Because you are secured by the hand of God. He cares for you. Remember that you are a chosen family. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who has called you out of the darkness. Into his marvelous light. For you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. And God's grace protects you and holds you and keeps you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your abundant grace and your love which flows towards us. Not because of anything that we have done, but simply because it was well-pleasing in your sight to work in our lives. Use us as your slaves, as your servants, as your ambassadors. Lord, help us be faithful to carry out the ministries which you have given us to do. It's in your name we pray, O Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.